love that gimbal. That gimbal rules. Last, the last stream I did with the, was the first with my setup here, and some people said it was too soft, they couldn't really hear it, so I'm putting the thing closer to my face, which might be disturbing to some viewers, but it's necessary for you to hear everything. I'm trying to minimize seeing my transformer box over there, which is not really very aesthetically pleasing. I honestly should, maybe I should turn around thinking about it. The background would be much nicer. Is it low audio again or are you gaslighting me? Am I being gaslit or can you hear me? Let me know. Ah yes, the tracksuit. The tracksuit will be back. Tracksuit will be back when the conditions change. Is it quiet? I don't know how to turn it up more. I only have, I keep turning the thing on but then it doesn't go all the way. I'm an old man. I don't understand these things. Oh, God damn it. Uh, are you people giving me the business? I'm trying, I'm trying to talk to you people, and you're leaving me here. Oh, now I don't know. I don't know anymore. And here I was. I was going to talk about the Demiurge. I was going to talk some more about the Demiurge, but now I don't know if you guys can even hear me. Oh, God damn it. Ah, <laughs> uh, shit. Bad faith actors, that's right. Why is the mic muffled? I don't understand it. The mic's down here, right? All right, I move, I, I like put my hand there. Does that help at all? What does that mean? You're just a little quiet. I don't even know what that means. Oh, now I don't know what to do. Now I'm trapped. Is there like a volume control in the thing here? All I can do is mute the microphone. Ugh. All right. Let's talk Demiurge. Uh, the reason I want to talk about the Demiurge is it was something I said yesterday, or on last time, we, uh, the last stream, about how people's religious convictions are losing their spiritual basis even without them knowing it over the years and how American Christians essentially worship uh, material wealth they, they worship money uh, and, the, and the United States but the United States is an avatar for material wealth as the thing that gets them that uh, and you know that those are made those are choices but they're also not choices if you know what I mean they're responses to conditions that are omnipresent and difficult to deal with and that reminds me of the demiurge and the demiurge was a notion of the early Gnostic Christians those sect of of Christians who uh, looked around the world they saw after hearing the teachings of Christ and having them accepting them in their heart, the idea of universal love, brotherhood, uh, uh, the abolition of poverty, strife, through cooperation and, and love. 
They looked around at the world that they lived in and lo and behold, it was not a world where they could live those values. You can't live like a follower of Christ in the world that they found themselves in. The world is filled with uh, horror, scarcity, terror, despair, and other people who are hostile to you and your people and what is to be done? God says turn the other cheek, but it's easy for uh, God, or Jesus says turn the other cheek. Sure as hell it's easy for them to say, for him to say, he's the son of God. If he gets struck down, he goes to heaven and he knows it. We are we don't have that kind of luxury. We're our lives are fragile and our knowledge of what is in store for us is non existent. So we have to we have this instinctive value to our lives. And we have an instinctive appreciation and value to the things we see around us that turns into greed, that turns into lust, that turns us away from thinking about God. It makes us impo- It's a world incompatible with the beliefs that we hold. It's impossible to be a Christian the way that the way the early Christians thought of it. It's impossible to be a Christian in the world that they found themselves in. And so the question arises: Why would God create a world where you couldn't live in accordance with His will? And the answer that the Gnostics came up with is God didn't. God created a spiritual universe in which we are in one. Uh, we are we are spiritual beings who will inevitably reunite with Him in the in the um, through the frictionless realm of spirit, and we will recommune with God. Then something intervened. Something called they called the demiurge, this evil demon, this malevolent God who trapped us in material forms trapped our godly spirits in material forms and the world we think is real is an illusion created by the Demiurge and that is that to them explained how we could live in a world so removed from a world that could be that uh, that would reflect God's desire for humans and God's love and all that and the thing about that is, is that it's essentially correct uh, in that we do not live in the real world, a real world. We live in, in a constructed realm, material and ideological, that is false, that is Im- imagined, uh, that is a, an illusion impressed upon reality. But instead of being created by a demon, it's created by all of us. It's created by every human who lived before us and every living every living human who enacts the systems that they find themselves in. Not through anyone's fault, but due to the fact that we are bound by our conditions. But so we live in a demiurgical reality shaped by the deforming reality of, drumroll please, exploitation. Of now capitalism. Of hierarchy. Of, of, of some hoarding at the expense of others. Hoarding pleasure, hoarding material wealth, uh, hoarding power that flows from that. And the thing is, is that the demiurgical, the, the, the Gnostics sought to break through, right? Which is what all of us can seek individually. And I think what the, what, what, what the Gnostics sought is the same thing that Buddhists seek. It's the same thing that uh, that ecstatic and mystic Christians and Muslims seek. 
that sense of oneness and community and communion with God, which is another way of saying with the universe. It is a perception of one's uh, unit of the unity. It's a perception of, of of communion with all other living and uh, living beings, and then the entire universe, which is all you. This is all God is, and that's all we imagine. Uh, all that's all God is. Right? Is everything, and it is a sense of being part of everything, as opposed to being separated. That's what all religious uh, ecstasy seeks. That's what all trans. That's what all uh, those moments are. Uh, transcendence and there are different ways to try to cultivate that in the self but the world around us intervenes and makes it very difficult for us to achieve those moments because we spend ourselves our lives trying to survive and dealing and also dealing with our attachment to the world around us the desire and greed that come from navigating a world of material reality and material pleasures And the, but the, so there is an individual search for, for communion and transcendence. But then there is, a, there is, as the species comes into awareness of itself as a species, which is the human progression, the dialectical pro progression, where, which we're in the process of, unless it's interrupted by a systemic collapse due to imbalance of the forces, which could very well happen, and if it's happened before, it will probably happen many more times in the future. Uh, until one time it doesn't, and we achieve a, a sustainable process by which the, the, the pain and the exploitation of the world is, through coordination and through the democratization of power, re as equally as possible, spread evenly throughout the human population, the human spe species, and that gives every individual within the species the freedom to come to those sort of moments of transcendence and their understanding of themselves in the world as part of God and no longer feel isolated from it. So we're all in a war. Everyone on the left is in this blind hacking war with the Demiurge to try to break the power of this, this evil god, the, de the nightmare of the dead generations that Marx talked about, that we're all trapped in. So that's what I think of the demiurge. The demiurge is capitalism, but it's not just capitalism. It's every accumulated institution and institutional thought and, and uh, cultural and uh, religious and ethnic uh, m uh, mental mechanism of sorting and separation. They're not evil. I mean, but the problem is, is, is to, to think of them that way you also have to remove. You have to remove your, the concept of agency from others to, to divorce the idea that you are fighting against like evil people, and accept that people are essentially ensorcelled to one degree or another by this world. 
and that you can only blame someone for to a limited degree for the degree to which they've been insourceful in because we all have the abilities to cope and abilities to process reality that are shaped by our individual conditions of birth uh, and and um, and and happenstance throughout life. that means that for yourself you have to fully embrace your your responsibility because the degree to which you are aware of things is the degree to which you are responsible for trying to change them to try to push through the demiurgical barrier like one thing that's really interesting is, um, like, we look at the way that the Trump administration and the various governors bungled the COVID response, which they absolutely did. But if we think about it, if, if we accept some of the data from, like, uh, if we're not going to go Alex Berenson and we accept some of the data from places like Hong Kong that have dense populations right there, much closer to the initial outbreak of COVID than us, uh, with six deaths so far. And their claim is because everybody wears a mask already, almost. And so when they said everybody wear a mask, everyone just did. <coughs> Implying, if that's true, we have to imply that. We don't know for sure, but if we imply that, that that's true. If we accept that that's true, rather. Then that means that the most, the hugest mistake that occurred was not something Trump did. It wasn't his idiot thing, his, his baby brain, no fucking object permanence thing about oh, well, if we don't count the numbers, they won't go up, and people won't get worried about it. It's that they told people, and it wasn't Trump who said this, not to wear a mask in the first couple of weeks. And the reason they said that is because our supply chains are so attenuated and so vulnerable to Chinese, inter uh, 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 to problems in China disrupting them, and of course that was the epicenter, that we didn't have enough masks for everybody, or we were afraid we wouldn't have enough masks for everybody. And the thinking was, in a moment when they were worried about a huge uh, explosion in hospitalizations, that the most important people to get the masks were first responders, were medical personnel. And therefore, you couldn't have regular people just rushing out and getting them. Uh, and so they said, What's going to be best is tell people not to wear a mask. It's not going to help anyway. And in fact, you're taking it from someone who it would have helped. Well, now we look back, and it looks like that might have been about the worst thing they could have said. Especially since, how the fuck do you tell everyone now to wear a mask when you said don't wear a mask before? I mean, all those rubes spazzing out and being filmed having uh, conniption fits in, in Trader, Joe's, Trader's Joe across the country... They are, of course, obscene baby, human, human babies, like we make them here in America, just giant, soggy babies. But if they yell, why was it oh, not? Why shouldn't we have wore a mask? And now do we wear a mask? What do you say? And the answer is because we didn't have the fucking capacity. We didn't have the masks, and we didn't have the social. We couldn't even ensure the the social, um, the the universality of like social investment to have any confidence that if they had said wear a mask and we could have had them enough numbers people would have because who the hell is you i don't what i'm saying is is that this stuff was not determined by individual discrete decisions 
as soon as COVID hit, it hit in a context where we have been socially atomized, uh, had all uh, universal epistemologies demolished uh, by accelerating culture and the media, uh, and uh, a decimated manufacturing base which literally would not allow us to manufacture something as simple as a fucking piece of cloth on a string in sufficient numbers to ensure that you didn't have a uh, have um, shortages in hospitals. That was all. That, that those conditions existed when COVID arrived. So anyone making a decision in the context of COVID is doing so with these limitations in place. And that is what that's the demiurge. Like even if you wanted to behave, even if you wanted to do the the best thing you you could, even if you wanted to listen to the better angel of your nature, you couldn't because it's not on the agenda. And if you decide to make the uh, the principal decision to like resign or something as an individual, somebody else will just do it instead. That's why the only thing that can break that power is a simultaneous coordinated movement. Like in Finding Nemo, not Finding Dory. Finding Nemo when they're all pushing against the fish net. That's the only thing that can overcome those natural restraints. Material, like obviously the ones in your our head, the ideological blinders we have, but also the fucking uh, the actual constraints, material constraints that govern every every fucking decision. Like when we talk about the president, we talk about the powers of the presidency. We talk about the president in terms of discrete decisions that they make, and that's the sum total of their presidency and the, the, their worth as a president, so that we can rank them on the fucking lists. But their choices are in real in reality confined right here. This is, this is the actual, relative to the possible, in the position of being President of the United States, the realistic ones, as in ones that this person in this time would do or could do, is right here. And that's the story, though, we tell is, is this, as though it were, it were a gigantic ideological uh, and personal ethical clash, when in reality, the real story the story that we should all focus on to contextualize human behavior and institutions and the power of institutions and the need to take them on is here. I can't even do it. It's not, I can't even... Uh, just imagine my hands are still going. That's the story. It's how many, this is where they could act and this is where they're allowed to act. It's the winnowing. And it's like, nobody wants to think that way because assigning more moral choices uh, to historical figures is part of the, the pageant and the romance of history. And the thing that makes us interested in it is a narrative about people and we get invested in them as characters. And if you are hyper aware while you're investing in a character that their decisions are attenuated and that their freedom of op choice is limited, then it robs them of that, uh, that character building uh, heroic element that is what gives us appreciation of, of narrative figures. I would not like to self-immolate quite yet. I'm still feeling like I've got some stuff to think it out before I do that. Thank you for the suggestion.
Uh, what's to be taken from Syed Katoub? Ha. Huh. Uh, well, I mean, to a degree, he was correct. I mean, we kind of laugh at it when we, when we hear the story of how he was freaked out by a sock hop in 1954 uh, like or something as an exchange student and came home and became a radical Wahhabist. Like, chill out, dude. But, I mean, it wasn't the sock hop, it was what the sock hop represented. And if we look at America, if we, if we look at the American equivalent in 2020 of a sock hop pre-COVID, uh, I think Katoub would probably be like, I was correct. Now, we might say, yeah, but you were wrong to not think this is cool. And it's like, well, okay, but there's a lot of people around the world who don't take that view on how culture changes. And they have to be accommodated in some way. And the thing is, they can be. It happens. It's not, it's not impossible. Like, look at Scandinavia. I mean, obviously, people talk, hate talking about the Nordics. I'm not talking about them as, like, a model of perfection. I'm just a model of phenomena in this instance that... It's not like uh, 19th century uh, Swedes were, were all, you know, like Polly and Pan. They were fucking dour Lutherans. Now they're like, whatever. They're go along to get along. They're come as you are. It's because the, the, man, the, the, the cultural shift was managed in a material way to minimize the stress of change to culture. And, that, and if there isn't enough of that, if there isn't enough lubricant, material lubricant of social change, you get sparks and friction like crazy. And that's where we've been for 40 years. It's sparks flying off the fucking railing because we're hyper-accelerating social progressiveness to make up for the increased, um, the, the increased immiseration and, and the in decreased aperture of possible ameliorative policies on the economic side. People are trying to correct me about the Gnostics and talk about how the Platonic forms predate them, but it's like, yeah, but I'm talking about in terms of their conception of it related to the Christian God, which don't re doesn't really apply to Plato. Uh, do I have any thoughts about the UK Labour Party under Keir Starmer? For one thing, hell of a name. Sounds like a 90s porn star, Keir Starmer. Uh, and what do I think of him and his party? I'm just glad I don't live, I'm not, I don't have to care about Pedo Island anymore. Uh, I mean, we might have blown our shot. We might have, but uh, England, the UK, absolutely did blow theirs. Done. They're finished. Uh, to quote, to quote the great De Niro in Copland, holding half of a pastrami sandwich. I never gave you enough napkins at this place. You had a chance to be a cop, and you blew it. You blew it. The UK blew it. They had their ch chance, and now, I mean, maybe we can, maybe something will come along from outside of there to rescue them. But, ooh, I would have a very hard time. I mean, I know you still got to go on, you know, uh, like. Like uh, Vladimir and Estragon, regardless of whether there's no more hope. But uh, I guess it's just like 
there might be a hope, but the time frame is so long that as an outside observer, I kind of give a privilege of not having to care. People who actually live there, they have to still care. They have to help move the thing along and accelerate the, the progress towards the next opportunity. But from outside of it, where I can't really help, it's just a bummer. I rather not. I mean, it does amuse me how brutally and publicly Starmer is able to purge uh, his opponents within the party. He's doing Night of the Long Knife shit over there that Corbin never even came close to trying. Uh, and of course, you know, you can use that as a criticism of Corbin, and I think Corbin clearly could have gone harder, but you have to remember that the, the media is there to cheer on Starmer as he's doing this, which means it's that much more easy to get away with it. Whereas if Corbin had really gone, I mean, they, to the degree that they did, like, deselect, they, the, the media went crazy, just cried bloody murder, like it was the fucking Great Purges all over again, because these toffee-nosed twats weren't being allowed to stand for their fucking constituency and umbrigs upon fucking pedophile. Cream clot upon barnstormer, fuck off. So if he'd gone harder, they would have cried even harder, and they probably wouldn't have been able to. But they could have. They could have cut a lot more fat than they did. Uh, so you, if you want to talk about what went wrong with them, I, to my, in my opinion, that's the like foundational error. Uh, and of course, it's impossible to know how far would have gone too far and would have caused more blowback than would have been worth it, because there's always that inflection point. Uh, uh, I just, I don't know, but I suspect that they'd come nearly close enough. They could have come a lot closer to the line. And if they had, they could have gotten a lot of benefits from it. Because we know for a fact that they were sabotaging him from the inside during both both candidate, both campaigns. People at the top levels of the party were sabotaging him. Uh, whereas Starmer has, nobody's had time to even do anything. While they were still disoriented, he just, Bath, Bath Party Converse, 1979. I have in my hand a list of traitors. That's one thing that uh, bums me out most about Bernie not winning the nomination is that if he'd won the nomination, he probably would have been able to take over the the hot top level of the bureaucracy of the party, and just uh, I believe he would have been a lot more ruthless than Corbin. Because I think that the uh, I think that the the libs. The, the donut people are 100% right in one thing they say about Bernie, which is they say he hates the Democratic Party and wants to destroy it. And the thing is, that's why I like Bernie, and that's the number one reason that I thought he was worth supporting, above all policy questions, is that his orientation towards the Democratic Party was correct. And that's the necessary precondition for any useful engagement with the electoral process, is knowing where the Democrats are relative to you and what they represent. Now, now he's with fucking Biden and whatever, uh, because he knows the moment's over, and he's just trying to he's trying to do the same harm mitigation that every individual voter is doing, because he now has as much fucking influence on what happens as we do, because the shot was taken, and it missed. I just think that if he'd gotten in charge there, that he would have cleaned house. And also, I think it's easier to clean house than the Democrats, just because it's not a real party, it doesn't have a mass membership, so... It's, it's much more a house of cards. You could probably swamp it pretty easily with just a m minimum of like grassroots effort. 
but you'd have to have control of the top to do that because otherwise, as we saw into a th in both elections with Bernie, they rigged the game to the degree that they can get away with. That's why, that's why once you, if you can burst through that and get on top, then you can make it easier for everybody. It's a Trojan horse, but it didn't happen. Okay, Sarasara, you win some and you lose most. That really should be, that should be the thing, shouldn't it? For people to really get a sense of what life's like. When something happens bad, you go, eh, win some, lose most. Just making it even less, it's supposed to make you feel better, right? Like, que sera, sera, like, hey, whatever, something happens, something doesn't happen. Just to remind yourself that this is the baseline. The baseline is failure. So there shouldn't be some huge trauma to find yourself there. That's where you always are. You were born in the dark, molded by it. First time I saw a candidate win a primary, I was already to demand, and by then it meant nothing to me. Hey, what if Bane smoked weed? Huh? 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 Imagine it. What if Bane smoked weed? He used that thing to chew, like the thing we we're the backpack and mask yet. I will, I will smoke you up, Batman. Then you have my permission to chew. There you go. Oh, thank you. Someone said I'm a hoot. I love being a hoot. One of the best things you can call somebody, in my opinion. Meets in there, Gordon. R.I.P. Cometown subreddit. R.I.P. I am interested to see what the former Chapo Trapo subreddit people do to call their new one. Because, like, everyone knows what happened with our subreddit. It started off as about our show, but then as all the other left subreddits imploded out of infighting which is inevitable in all political subreddits because that's the, the, na the nature of niche politics is that it implodes they kept having these refugees and they ended up all pooling under the banner of our of our show because it was the closest thing to just like an uncharged signifier that was left and then it became filled with like the whole dregs of the reddit left and it, our show had barely any connection to it anymore and and we would get mad at it and people would say, hey, don't they realize it doesn't have anything to do with the podcast? Which is, to my answer was, yeah, I, that's why we don't like it. And, the, and it was not even that we wanted them to stop. It was that I would have preferred, among all options, they just take our fucking name off of it. I don't want to be responsible for the awful bullshit in there. The fucking cringe posts. Just the worst memes, the worst try-hard bullshit. And because this is the nature of the internet and the nature of people who are political in this country, because the pe person who is online doing posts about politics and Reddit is likely to be uh, relatively white, college-educated, uh, uh, and therefore liberal. Like, socially. Because acculturated to the, the manners of, of, of social nicety inculcated by college. Let's say that. 
And that means that they're going to find in the predatory, uh, me first, uh, neoliberal marketplace, the entrepreneurial marketplace of online discourse, the, the markers of, that are emotionally charged and, and, and capable of being utilized are the gender and identity ones. They're, the, they're, they're, they're cheat codes, essentially, to emotional response, which is what you're looking for when you're trying to craft takes and you're trying to build a identity online for people to appreciate, to give you value, to give you an identity in a sense that you're doing something by being online, either for yourself or for the cause. But we're both bound up in you being perceived as being a good leftist. And so that stuff is going to be what the arguments coalesce around and the incentive structure is going to be to create a cocoon of of uh a cocoon of sort of groupthink uh, a a a a totalized worldview around race and gender topics that then creates an inevitable antithesis in the form of the class first strasserite reductionist who will then battle with the consensus, uh, sharpening both into more uh, powerful, compact uh, identity formations that give people even more emotional connection and validation from being online and doing politics. And that is a sterile doom cycle that will dominate any online space inevitably. That created a, the Chapo Trapos read it as being this weird uh this weird place of like hysterical it was like an, a, an attempt to demand fidelity to like classical class first class only marxism like marxist class and material analysis but then on top of it insisting upon total adherence to every discrete identity argument and the thing is is that sometimes those things come into conflict and you have to make priorities and it's a give and a take, but like I said, the conditions of the internet mean it's only ever going to be give. That's only going to be the possible answer for every discrete one of these issues, which means that it'll always defeat the primacy of the class material position every time. And so that's what, and then so that like Chapo Chapos inevitably throws off stupid Paul as its antithesis, right? And you'll notice it's like a negative dialectic, which is what Adorno called culture, because it throws things backwards. It takes what once unified and strips it in the process of applying the market to it, like doing fucking uh, uh, fission, splitting the fucking atoms of culture and like uh, social order. Because you have Chapo as a show, which like uh, a culture has ab totally absorbed social liberalism for the, and I think it should, but then applied social liberalism to the greater question of, of socialism and of uh, social liberation, uh, and and that, I think the show has always struggled to be that. But then it th creates an online culture, and then it creates its own secondary uh, uh, being, which is the flattening of that, and because of the flattening influences of. Uh, identity politics on internet spaces. Boom! Of course, it creates this thesis out of that, out of a th out of a synthesis. This thesis of hysterical uh, identity, and then boom, creates an antithesis of stupid Paul. It literally sh it, it splits things.
it splits social orders. It, it's negatively dialectical, which is the power. That's why, and the thing, everything I've described, by the way, is online. The, our show exists completely online, and then both of those things being subreddits are obviously even more online, more symbolic. So if you're in that land, if you're in that neoliberal order of the online uh, digital uh, identity, political, ideological matrix, you will create that negative dialectic, which is why you've got to grill. For the love of Pete, start grilling. Get busy grilling or get busy drying. Apply politics to the things closest and most understandable to you, least abstract. As, uh, as, as concrete as possible. And I know there's obviously the, oh, you're doing this on an iPhone style uh, irony of me giving this impassioned plea on an internet fucking Twitch website, which is just designed to turn your brain into, put your brain in a Cuisinart, just like all this stuff. Fragment everything into, into un, inassa- unassailable uh, mutant chunks that are no longer of the same thing, even though they once were. Just shattering and, and, and burning the ashes. But I'm trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my fucking life. And I only know one way to think my way towards that right now, given my situation, and it's this. So until that changes, this is as unabstract as I can get. And uh, I throw some grilling in there too, of course. And also uh, trying to write more reading a lot more oh god reading so much more uh and that's a big part reading it's like your brain your spirit like it's the health bar you just doot, doot, doot. it's like being in a video game if 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 you're if there was like a game that assimilated like all health you know health wasn't just physical it was also spiritual it like removed the cartesian duality there but gave you like food fuel for both and you're in a video game you know you get like a turkey leg for your bodily health, but a book, boop, that's your, like, mind, sharpening it, uh, uh, and it's still, obviously, that's still an abstract level, but it's a, a level of abstraction much closer to life, and much closer to the speed of life than the digital realm. Right, right now I'm reading, I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through uh, Walter Scheidel's book uh escape from rome which i cannot recommend enough uh if i had to recommend one book for people to start reading before they really wanted to get into historical materialism i would i would recommend this book like if you'd read marx and stuff and you wanted to start applying it to history i even though scheidel i don't think is a marxist this book uh it is the most dialectically minded piece of like world historical literature i've ever read uh, and I'm reading it very, very slowly because just the, having it still be a thing I read is, it's like, it's stimulating my thoughts about history and, uh, like he, the, the overall thesis is he is explaining why the West, i.e. Europe had a, such a technological, uh, explosive growth in the 19th century, the divergence away from the mean of like global uh technological uh society uh and along the way he's describing it over the course of you know human history basically at least since the fall of rome and at sometimes he makes arguments that are 
that demand a uh, like a material explanation for a phenomenon. Like in this instance, the the geo the geographic reality of like the, where the step is is determinative. Everything else lies on top of that. You can't get below that. But in a different level, at a different time, in his narrative, in the narrative of uh, human social uh, evolution, uh, like the question of why Europe was able to colonize the rest of the world uh, and not vice versa, or were any anybody else conquering and and uh, exploring uh, the new world, uh, he says the determining factor here is institutional, not geographical. But that's because the question is never is it institutions or is it geography or whatever. It's never is it one or the other. It's which one is it now in this specific instance. And that is the way that all history should be approached. And so little of it is processed. I like when I think of the way that history is taught as like this this series of discrete decisions that are made by people totally unmoored to the to why just just this this absolutely sterile single causality oh i mean it makes it basically impossible if you don't really apply yourself to the study of history and why would you if it was that boring and sterile uh it leaves you essentially unable to think about the past in any way that's illuminating of the present you can't use it to make sense of the world because it does not comport to the complexity of the world around you. It leaves you with a thin, brittle, bronze lance that'll just snap at the first uh, contact with iron. Or steel, or whatever. Steel. I mean, the very fact that we like talk about presidents, even on the left, like, he's a good president, he's a bad president. Uh, actually, there are no good presidents. Or, here's my top ten list of presidents. I do that all the time, too. And the thing is, you can do that. It is, within the discrete uh, apertures of choice that presidents have, you can sh pick the ones who did a better and a worse job with the freedom they had. Absolutely. But we think of it the way you would you about ranking that with the same sort of drama that you think about ranking uh, best baseball players of all time. But it's much more like ranking the best umpires of all time. You could do it. There are better and worse umpires, objectively. But it's a very it would be a very boring, dull, deterministic uh, action because of how constrained their choices are. Whereas ranking the best baseball players, you're talking about the entire uh, wild caught. Causally open, near randomized possibility of all op opportunities for every at bat. Near infinite. There's a near infinite. The number of things that could happen when you fucking hit hit go get into the um uh the, the number of ways that a at bat can end are so varied. It's mind blowing. It's mind boggling. But every choice by an umpire is strike or or ball. Or fair foul, but that's the reality of the of the options of the choices that presidents have. They're fully determined. I mean, we're we're all fully determined by circumstances, but they're more obviously through our ability to to study the historical record that leads to decisions. We can see how constrained they are much more than individuals without power. Like we're all fully determined in why we why we why what what we're gonna do, but. It's such a, it's such a, it's such a, the decisions are so personal 
that uh, delving into the depths of the causality, like the deep stuff, you know, things in the subconscious that happened years and years ago that nobody even knew at the time, including the per especially the person who's thinking them. Uh, that means that determining the next, determining their, uh, you know, their choices are, their degree of fixedness is very difficult. For a president, the, the, the monumental size of the choices a president gets to make, you can almost fully map why. And you can like squeeze the amount of agency out of it, like the percentage out of a hundred agency out of it. And I guarantee you it's like in the single digits. Ah. Uh. Oh, this has been good. I think this has been a fun one. I hope I haven't been making sense. I'm feeling like I'm getting a little more, uh, this one's been a little bit more conceptual, because I know I've been sort of grinding down closer to the, the pavement since the first couple batch of post-enlightenment streams, but now I feel like I'm, I'm coming up popping up again, like the top of the, top, the front wheel is popping off the pavement a little bit, and just want to make sure I'm going to get some feedback here if this is tracking for people. Alright, good. Feeling good. Uh, yeah, no, I'm feeling very on the beam right now. Have been for the last couple days after a little bit of a... Uh, I've not been doing acid, by the way. This idea that I'm like constantly high. Yes, I smoke weed, but I've always I've been a tumor for a while, and of course, you know, plenty of people are are relatively uh, common weed smokers. I don't smoke as much weed as a lot of people I know <coughs> will. <coughs> um, but no, I have not been like dosing myself. I try to I try to not overuse the stuff because I want to be using it for a long time, like therapeutically. So I don't want to fry my circuits prematurely. But I'll probably do it again soon. It's been a while. It's been a while! So I might do it again soon. But like, it's a cliche to say that, oh man, you took a trip and like, now I know everything. It's like, no one knows anything. And that's what you learn. You learn you don't know anything, but if you can attach that to a greater... Uh, a greater confidence in your understanding of the consequences of that reality, of the profound ignorance that we all live in, that's the real freedom. I keep hearing people talk about this Alan Watts character, and what I've looked at has been interesting. He seems to be a dude uh, uh, operating on a good wavelength, and I'd like to, I'd like to listen to him some more. Uh, somebody asked for best. 30 Rock moments, and I'm just going to say, not the best really, but I would just want to stick up for the live episodes, one of which has now been removed from Netflix because of uh, the half-assed uh, blackface they did in it, in, in the scene with John Hamm, which was very funny at the time because it's, you could tell like the evolution of social order, like in, in, the, in, 19, in 1999, as people found out recently and freaked out about, 
Jimmy Fallon did full blackface to play Chris Rock. Dark blackface. Now, 30 Rock, in I think like 2010, what they did is they did like cork. Like a little bit of cork. Which I think, there is like a vaudeville tradition there, so that's like not totally uh, haphazard. But, but clearly they understood that they could not go all the way. They couldn't do like an Al Jolson face. Uh, and now, 10 years later, they retroactively remove it. So you can see how, like, the attitude changes over time. And you can say that's good, you know? Good, good that we're not doing that. Uh, and I'd say, I think it probably is good, but I do think that what you, if you accept that, if you accept that progression and you're happy about it, it means you have to let it go. It means you can't keep dragging up the old stuff. There has to be a Truth and Reconciliation Committee. There has to be a Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Because... Because if there's not, if there's only blame and never, ever forgiveness, what is going to be the incentive for anyone to go along with your social order? Why would anyone say, I'm going to accept the new premise of, like, the wrongness of blackface or, or you know, the wrongness of these slurs or the need for inclusivity in the business or whatever, when the thing I said before this moment, years before, is going to condemn me in the new reality? Why would I sign on? You need people to sign on to the new social contract that you're building. And you're essentially telling people that uh, unless they are pure of heart in some Calvinistic freak show way, which only these psychos even think they are, and a lot of them aren't, a lot of them get fucking canceled themselves. If somebody digs it up, boom. Uh, but they're deluded themselves into thinking they're going to be on the winning end of that end of that uh, coin flip. So why would you ever do that? So what you mean is, is, like, if we want to celebrate the fact that now no one wants to do blackface, you have to let it go. You have to let it go. It means the old ones, ha you, need, you need to wipe the slate. We need a jubilee. And if people, if anyone who says no to that deal, if anyone says, I will not trade my ability to be vindictive towards somebody for actual social progress, well, then they don't want social progress. They want to have the weapon. They want to beat people with it. It's like, why would I want to disarm? Why would I want to give up my guns? It's like the social SJW version of Second Amendment shit. Like, you'll disarm me, and then you will take me over. You'll, you'll take my cancel culture when you pry it from my cold, dead hand. And like I said, like this doesn't apply to stuff that happens now because you're building the new order right now. You need to have enforceable social norms and society needs to be able to enforce them. And people complaining online is a, is a form of that. But it, might, it cannot be retroactively applied. There has to be an understanding that people can change. Without that, you will get nowhere and it's because you don't want to get anywhere. So ask yourself, anybody who resists what I'm saying, anyone who hears this and gets mad, ask yourself, why do you think you need that? And I think the, the, most, the, the best answer, the one that's like least incriminating and the, therefore the one I'm going to choose to believe is the most, the most motivating to the most people because I do assume good faith in most people, not everybody is an evil double agent, it's that I'm worried about losing out in the new order. I'm a little worried that at some point things are going to go bad and then... And, it, and there's going to be a, a, a big setback, and I'm not going to have, I'm not going to be able to defend myself. And I think to the degree that that's the concern, it just speaks to a lack of 
lack of faith in the project, a lack of faith in your ability to win. And to that I have to say, that's a Kierkegaardian leap of faith that you have to take to truly, in good faith, engage with a movement. And if you can't do that, then you are not part of it. And you know what? If people can look inside themselves and answer that question, I think it could be illuminating. And I think a lot of people realize, you know what? I can lay down this burden and give myself over to this cause because it's worth it and I'm ready to take the risk. I think a lot of people would make that choice. And if they made that conscious choice, their approach to everything would change and they would realize, I don't care if we fucking cancel people for shit that's five years old or five months old even. I think a lot of people would make that choice, but they don't even know that they're, they're, they're choosing not to do that. They don't even know they have the option because it's all happening below the level of consciousness. So I'd say we're all going to have, like, if there's going to be a coming together, and I, I doubt there will because everything's still online, and online pushes us apart and polarizes us, if there's any hope that we overcome that, it'll be people coming together around uh, ideas that are mutually agreeable and, and enforceable. And I would say that one of them is statute of limitations on cancellations. Six months. Maybe four months. We could argue. It could be a negotiation. Let it be a negotiation so the people feel that they're contributing to the, the final decision and have investment in it. And then agree. Problem is, there's no one to make this deal. Because no one is representing anyone. It's just a bunch of individuals navigating this entrepreneurial neoliberal web space to create identities and until there's a polarization around things like class to coordinate meta coordinate and make these kind of deals there's no hope and that's why you have to hope for material intervention to break up the online uh, anti-dialectic and maybe that'll happen i'm still holding on hope but it's not happening now and that's why my big advice to people in the moment right now, I feel the thing that feels most true is log off to the degree that you can. Uh, but don't just sit around, don't just game, don't just jack off, don't just get high. Apply yourself to something with your whole heart and intention. And if you focus hard enough on the world around you, you can find something. It doesn't have to be political. The political comes later, after you've satisfied the deeper urge that your political life is only a cover for. It's only a bullet hole on a, it's only a band-aid on a bullet wound is what you have. You have a spiritual ache and you're trying to cover it with politics, but that politics has to come out of spiritual understanding, not cover for spiritual emptiness, because then it will always lead you astray. So fill that hole at the spiritual level by applying yourself to the world around you in a way that is satisfying to the, to, and keeps you in the moment and makes you perceptive of your moment. And then you will find a place to put your politics that will emerge from that organically. Oh, this is a good one. I feel like this is a good one. I might recommend this one to people. Of course, I could also have already canceled myself. I don't even know. I could find, I, I haven't looked, I mean, this is my phone. Nobody's texted me, so I think I'm all right. But I could, someone could have already canceled me for this fucking stream. I'm not sure. A few times I felt like I was like riding on a higher frequency and kind of might not have, uh, I don't know, gotten conceptually low enough to get to a point of uh, good faith, common understanding. We'll see. If I am canceled, then so be it. 
Shoot, you cowards. You are only canceling a man. Tweet, you cowards. You are only canceling a man. There we go. Uh, haha, John LeCount, my friend, uh, who is clearly watching the stream, has just texted me to say that I got canceled. That's a fun spoof, John. Thank you. Shout out to John LeCount. That's the thing. There's no... You couldn't make that deal because there's no one to make a deal because no one's coordinating any of this. Which is why the arguments about the efficacy or ethics of cancel culture are so beside the point. Because it will just occur... It's title. It's not willed by individuals, which means no there's no number of fucking op-eds you could read or fucking medium posts or podcasts you could listen to to get everybody to change their minds about it. Because every one of those articles feeds the cycle. People read that, but they don't read it in a vacuum. They read it through the lens of their existing ideology and their existing underlying uh, uh, interests, self-interests, or perceived self-interests. And that means that it will only generate its own antithesis. Everything, every article, like every every own on a on on a, a subreddit, uh, every podcast that speaks the truth, every fucking like uh, trolling article uh, uh, and and pro provocation against the PC police, as satisfying as they are, and as useful to build morale on your side as they are, they only feed the cycle because it's. The other side needs things like that to wheat their stone of identity against. They have to have the chum to be themselves. So of course they they serve a purpose. They're part of the ecosystem. And 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 nothing can stop that. And so no no speeches, no posts are going to change this situation. It cannot happen. It's an anti-dialect. It's, it's, it's locked. It has to be broken out of. So every, because like every argument about whether this is good or bad, what, every argument about what cancel culture is or whether it's good or bad is just part of the fish tank of eddies and swirls that creates counterculture, counter, uh, cancel culture. It's constitutive of it. Every argument about cancel culture is constitutive of cancel culture. There is no out. It is all one thing. Because it is that argument that creates the sides and defines the sides. And that's what makes canceling inevitable and spontaneous. Which means no one can stop it or start it. Which means arguing about whether it's good or bad is meaningless. It's like asking if oh, a storm uh, is good or bad. It might have good or bad effects, but the thing itself has no moral. Uh, it has no moral dimension. It might do a good or like hey that that uh, storm uh, blew out that forest fire. That was a good storm. Hey that storm destroyed our hometown. That's a bad storm. It was the effects that are good or bad. The thing itself has no moral dimension. 
But that's what we're all doing. We're ascribing a moral dimension to something that is effectively a fucking wind pattern. So there we go. That was fun. Might have to watch this later to go through some stuff and make sure I didn't uh, make a make some sort of confusion that I'd have to uh, explain and follow up on. But for now, I feel pretty good about it. Maybe I'll take a question or two before I log off. I'm vibing right now. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't want to go off on a rant here. Oh, the name of the book I'm recommending, Escape from Rome by Walter Scheidel. Uh, he has another book that I'm going to read after this one now because I'm a huge fan where he uh, talks about the history of wealth inequality and he argues pretty persuasively because I've read his argument in other forms uh, being quoted and like interpreted that the things that ever have successfully uh, really brought down uh, the wealth, this huge wealth disparities in a culture are wars and massive plagues, massive population loss through either warfare and capital destruction, through warfare or, uh, or viruses and plagues. And of course, civil collapse. So the attempt, the great leveler, that's it. Yeah, and that's another one where it's hard to argue. Uh, and I think the, the real question isn't whether that's gonna happen again, it's how, what the conditions of that, uh, that collapse are. Because, um, you know, it doesn't have to be population declining and dying. It can be capital being destroyed. But capital can be destroyed productively. Like, there could be, like, a distribution of capital can, like, destroy concentrated capital while, like, creating a, a more efficient uh, social system uh, or uh, economic engine out of the remainder. Uh, yeah, uh, oh man, yeah, the David Harvey thing is pretty annoying, uh, because he, when he says we can't just let, ec it really does show the, how people really haven't thought through anything beyond, like, the romantic, the romantic personal attachment to revolution, there's very, very little, uh, it's kind of a nauseatingly small amount of, uh, of thought put into what you actually would do to seize power or do with it. And uh, I understand you don't want to put the cart before the horse, but being so instinctively repulsed towards the idea of managing a, a move away from capitalism that doesn't destroy the lives of millions of fucking people, that isn't massively deadly and awful, like maybe it'd be, maybe it'd be easier to build a humane society uh, uh, through the existing humane institutions that are interwoven within, contradictorially within uh, liberal capitalism, instead of starting from fucking scratch in the Hobbesian war of all against all? Do you not understand how that is one is more preferable to the other, just in a pure moral perspective, but also in terms of expediting the process of, of, of communism? Criminy. 
Like every 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 level of capitalist development you destroy in a collapse, that has to get built back up, you know, right? You need a certain amount of concentrated capital to create the technological inputs to alleviate enough need for human inputs to allow for socialism. There is a is there is a what it is specifically I don't think has been ever devised, but there is a tipping point of technological development that is necessary to socialize production non-hierarchically. So if you destroy capitalism, if it just collapses and it collapses that capacity and destroys that capacity, it has to be rebuilt. And it was only ever built through capitalism. The attempts to do it through communism have been were less effective. It was because they were in competition with capitalism, but they also had access to capital, which they wouldn't in this situation. Oh shit, it's raining again, guys. Well, this was a good one. I'll talk to you guys soon. See you on the flippity flop.